Good afternoon, everybody. This is Corey Hepler for the Crazy Monkey Inc. podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Jared Gifford. Hey. Hey. Uh, I want to explain to everybody, sorry that Corey sounds like a really high-pitched Mickey. Um, <laughs> unfortunately... A creepy 90-year-old woman. Or, or, yeah, hey. Our, and in the background there is my brother Derek. Uh, we, we always love having him every now and again. Uh, but but yeah, unfortunately, poor Corey here is uh, is just getting over an illness. So you'll have to you know you'll you'll have to forgive him for that uh, that that creepy pedophilia voice. <laughs> anyway, um, Jared, what do we have on the? on the table for today that we're going to be talking about. Let's see. Um, tonight, actually, well, first off, I want to get right out the door, right out of the way. Um, <clears throat> this has kind of become a staple lately, is that I want to I want to let people know that, uh, first off, you know, uh, Cra- Crazy Monkey Inc. announcements, first off, uh, I want people to know Durham's number one through three, still available on our website. Please check it. Please check it out. Please read it. Please enjoy it. I also want to throw out that Taxi Cab Joe number one is also available. Um, you know, please check out the books, buy them, share them amongst your friends, spread the word. Uh, you know, uh, spread us on social media. Um, and, uh, and and but but as we've pointed out before. Um, social media is great, and please share amongst your friends on social media. But word of mouth is so important. Please, if you like us, tell people about us. And, and the same thing with this podcast too. With this podcast, um, not only can you find us on SoundCloud, but you can also find us on Spotify. If you if you look if you look this podcast up on Spotify, you can find us. And all you'd have to do is look up Crazy Monkey Inc. in the search, and it'll pop right up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and then you'll find it. And, and so I want to get that out of the way right away, get those announcements. And like I said, please, buy your comic books, check them out, share them amongst your friends, and please spread the word. Now, we have a phenomenal <laughs> show for you guys tonight because we're going to go back in time, mm-hmm. and we're going to be talking about the cinematics and the structure of what was movies back in the day and how it evolved through the decades. In layman's terms, we're going to go through the history of movies. Now, I know we're both huge fans of Charlie Chaplin, but Mm -hmm. there's even movies a couple years before that that I know you know of that I'd love to hear. Oh, oh yeah, well, uh, you know, it goes back to the silent era because uh, the thing is, it's like even though Charlie Chaplin was part of the silent era as well, but he moved into the sound era, um, there, there were plenty of other things. I mean, um, they used to start with, like, uh, there were things like they had, um, um, and I forget his name, but um, but there was the guy who did that that first film in the uh, in the 1890s, and it was it was an adaptation of uh, Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, um, and that was one of the first uh, first examples of film. They uh, in in around that same time they came out with the very first adaptation of Frankenstein that a lot of people don't know about. <coughs> um, and it was uh, it was actually because uh, uh, um, uh, Thomas Edison had come out with this sort of machine that would do films. Yeah. And this was the precursor to what we known as the film camera. 
and um, and and that's when he did that adaptation. In fact, it's one of the few surviving um, adaptations of certain things that survive. Um, and and then uh, you know, and then there's several other things. That, uh, um, another one that's actually really good that uh, that a few have survived in, from the silent film era, but then there's some that only clips exist. There was there uh, there was a movie called The Golem, and for those not familiar with it, it's Golem, not Gollum. It's not the guy from Lord of the Rings, but a golem is is actually a, it's a sort of creature from um, from Jewish mythology. Yeah, um, <coughs> and uh, and it was sort of like this stone creature that would do the bidding of its master. Um, and uh, anyway, there was actually a film trilogy that they had of this. But there's only, um, but only one full movie survives to this day, and <coughs> with the other two, only only certain film clips film clips survive. Because um, for those who don't know, there is a lot of uh, there's a lot, a ton of films from the silent era that never got preserved or saved. Because which is sad, because there's a lot of them that came yeah. out of the silent era yeah. that were absolutely fantastic. Oh yeah, and and, well, and they had some really great ideas attached to them. Um, uh, one, uh, and and you watched the documentary of uh, Mufuni, the Last Samurai, with me. Yeah. And uh, they talked about some of the early um, Japanese films, which came out around the same time. There was a genre that they called the Chandra genre, and that was basically it was costumed swordplay movies, um, and um, and anyway, um, there's a lot of really good ones that, that happened around that time, but unfortunately not a whole lot of the films survived through that era, because the big problem was, was there wasn't a big thing to preserve movies back then like there is today. To get people to understand, what happened was back then the movie the, the movie um, sort of industry, the movie industry was in its infancy. And um, and so what happened was there wasn't so much of a need to preserve movies because the whole thing was they figured that they get that out there people would get famous for a little bit and then uh, and and then people would forget about it. Um, they didn't know that movies would have the lasting impact that they would today. Um, so the biggest problem is, as I said, so there was no nobody would nobody would save the film. <clears throat> from these movies. They would either get scrapped or burned or thrown out um, because nobody thought that anybody would want to see them again. It was kind of like a one-shot deal for films. Yeah. And it was really sad because you can think of so many of those movies that came out and you're thinking, you know, to this day, if they would have saved them, mm -hmm. I mean, think of the archive that we um, could have had of just the silent era of movies. Oh yeah, and so because uh, yeah, there wasn't a, there wasn't an attempt to start preserving and saving movies. Actually, sadly, and I found this out sadly until the nineteen seventies. I, I know it, that long. It's it sounds seems like it's sad, but yeah, I mean there would be certain movies before them that they would save. You know, obviously, because like you know, uh, there are certain things that survived to this day. But the problem was, it wasn't a. There wasn't. Uh, they didn't have like an. They, they had more. They didn't have like an official rule for that. Yeah. It was like it was basically <clears throat> most things that you said was it was like a one and done thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and and it's sad because as I said there's many films from the silent era. Um, oh, and Lon Chaney um 
Lon Chaney Sr., not Jr., but Lon Chaney Sr. started his career in during the silent era. He did. He was the one who did the original Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in. He was an adaptation of of um, of uh, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yep. Um, Which to this day, yeah, to me is mm-hmm. probably the best Hunchback of Notre Dame ever. Uh, oh yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing is, is like. Uh, uh, so that's the thing. There's two things from that era that survived. Uh, oh, one that survived from that era and still considered a classic to this day, and you and I both love it. One of the very first vampire movies they ever came out with, and you know what I'm talking about. Are you talking about Nosferatu? Exactly. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. And for those who don't know, what happened was Nosferatu was. Uh, during this time period, um, Bram Stoker had died, but his wife owned the rights. To the Dracula franchise. Which was really nice because then she could come up with different mm-hmm. adaptations. She could, but, but what happened was at this time, at this time, she wasn't giving any movie studios any permission to do her stuff. Uh, or to do her husband's stuff. She had and, such a tight, closed yeah. fist on that because yeah. she was of the understanding that they were going to bastardize it and make yeah. it not as great as the book was. Oh, yeah. But but uh, but to try and uh, get through this as quickly as possible, what happened was uh, when they did the adaptation of, of, of Dracula, what, was it, what happened was they wanted to avoid getting sued. Yeah. So what they did was that... Um, because they couldn't get permission from Bram Stoker's widow to do an adaptation of Dracula, what they did was they basically changed all the names, and it's basically what Nosferatu is is basically the first Dracula. Yeah. You know, people can go ahead and debate that all they want, but what happened was they just they changed the names. You know, instead of Count Dracula, they did Count Orloff. Um, you know, uh, and then many of the names of the main characters were changed. <coughs> um, and but. Essentially, it's the same story. Basically, yeah. uh, you know, uh, basically what you have is Bram Stoker's Dracula with all the names changed. And what was interesting is when I saw Nosferatu for the very first time, mm-hmm. that's exactly what I thought. And I had, and mm-hmm. I had zero clue back in the day when I saw Nosferatu mm-hmm. that it was the adaptation from the original. I had found that out years later. And I was like, that's why it felt so familiar. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I said, there's so many gems out of the silent era. And, 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 then, you, and then you pointed out, here's the whole thing. One person, and I want to use this opportunity to take him to transition us into the sound era, but one person who was both in the silent film era and in the sound era was Charlie Chaplin, as you yeah. said. And he was so good at both because he had really hilarious stuff when it was in the silent era, but then he was able to take that and translate it into the sound era. And um, with me, there are two films that he did that resonate his career Mm -hmm. from everything that he did. There were these two films that I feel really um, brought out who he was. Yeah. There was The Dictator, Mm -hmm. where he played as Hitler, which he did an amazing speech. Even to this day, it's quoted. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe it's called The Factory. Oh, yeah. That one was awesome. Oh, yeah, and so I'm saying, and that actually was part of the trans... when, when he transitioned into the sound era. Uh-huh, yeah. And then, and then, and then here's the thing. We have to touch on this. I know we touched on this in our, in our like, top ten horror movies and stuff, but we got to yeah. talk about this. History of cinema, you can't go without this. 
Now we're in the sound era. I want to talk about 1930s, the start of the Universal Monster movies. See, now, we would be unjustified if we didn't touch on that because... It's when horror came out, it was just around the time where they had they were tinkering with the sound and they were mm -hmm. tinkering with mm -hmm. everything else. And yeah. they made such gems back in the day with the very first horror movies. Oh, it's, yeah. You, you can't help but give um, homage to those movies. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like, it's, it's with like, you know, I mean, you start out and then you had the perfect actors portraying them. I mean, it's like... Uh, one of the things is uh, a lot of people don't know the guy that, like Bella Lugosi in the in the very first Dracula movie. Thing was was that uh, initially they were going to use a different actor, but what's funny is uh, Bella Lugosi was actually the guy who would do the stage play because they had stage play of the very same name, which had a very similar story. Exactly. Um, and basically what they did was hey, since we're doing an adaptation of the stage play of Dracula anyway. Why don't we use the stage actor? And that's what they did, because Bela Lugosi was the stage actor. And then, but the thing about how iconic he is to that role now, because what's so funny is there's so many things that we equate with Dracula, that that Bela Lugosi was the one who kind of uh, who set the precedent for that. First off, like the thick Romanian accent oh, yeah. that comes from Bela Lugosi. You know, what do you think? Ooh, Count Dracula. Whenever anybody does that, Count Dracula. That's Bella Lugosi. Exactly. And yeah. everybody, every other yeah. actor after that, yeah. um, whether it was Christopher Lee, whether it was Gary Oldman, mm -hmm. um, or some other prominent uh, Dracula actor, yeah. they all took the precedent of what Bella, Bella Lugosi. Lugosi had brought to yeah. Dracula, yeah. and they accentuated upon it. But no one will ever beat out... Bella yeah. Lugosi's Dracula. It's just not going to happen. Well, basically, he set the precedent. Kind of like, and, once again, <coughs> and, and, and I'm not mocking anybody else who's played as James Bond, but but like I, I think of I think of like uh, down the line of successions of Draculas, almost kind of like James Bond. It's the fact that um, Sean Connery and James Bond set the precedent for who James Bond was. Exactly. I don't give a crap who plays James Bond at any point in the future. Um, the thing is, Sean Connery's always going to be. Of, of the person of whom they usually uh, will base their 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 performance on. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the Lugosi. He set the precedence for Dracula. So many things. The the stare, the accent, the way that he moved, like even even like even like concealing his face with the cape. That yeah. was that was a Bella Lugosi thing. And his brutish nature. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and as we said, you know, oh, and, and then the fact that of how much of a gentleman he was. The whole thing was was that 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 they a lot of them based it off of that as well. Because I mean, you know, because Bela Lugosi was also the one who set the precedent in most of those movies. That I mean, it, I mean, it, it came directly from the book as well. But basically, that Dracula was this guy that would wine you and dine you and get you to let your guard down, and then and then that's when he would kill you. Exactly. And I feel that had Bela Lugosi not been the prime mm. uh, director of that role, yeah. who knows what kind of Dracula we would have had throughout the years. Oh, yeah, and then, listen, there's so many people who, who, who came out around that time with the Universal Monster movies, because then, then you had Boris Karloff in Frankenstein. Yes, who did a fantastic job. Oh, yeah, I mean, and once again... you. 
the I mean once again they took liberties. But what I what, what I kind of like about this one is that even though it doesn't follow, it only loosely follows the book. <coughs> um, what I like about what Boris Karloff did with the character was. He didn't. He made the character to where it was. It was almost sort of like this tragic figure, and not so much like this murderous death machine. Yeah. Um, is like uh, it. What Boris Karloff did was he actually made you feel sorry for that creature. And the interesting thing is, that's exactly how the book portrayed it. Um, to a degree, but there, there also had a lot to do with revenge because if you remember from at least the book. What happened was there was tragedy in the book, yeah. uh, no, no doubt about it, and you did feel for the creature to an extent you felt for Victor Frankenstein to an extent, but it was a little different because it was more of a story of love and revenge. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> with with the Frankenstein that uh, w with the Frankenstein adaptation that Boris, Boris Karloff did, it felt more like um, a story of of someone who was different being misunderstood. And I feel that how he portrayed Frankenstein, mm -hmm. that actually helped a lot of people <clears throat> who did feel different, felt yeah. like they could never be understood. Oh, yeah, and, listen, and then they did more and more adaptations, and it just became this big thing, because then, you know, they had the mummy, they mm -hmm. had the wolfman, then they started doing sort of the crossovers with, like, House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Yeah. Uh, they even had uh, Frankenstein versus the wolfman. And they even, and it was still in the black and white era, yeah. they even had Abbott and Costello meet Dracula. Oh, yeah. And one of, one, of the, one of the last movies during that black and white era of monster movies, and, and it's considered to be part of the classic monster movies now, um, even though, hilarious enough, the originals came out in the 30s and this one didn't come out till the 50s. Yeah. Uh, the Creature of the Black Lagoon movies. Exactly, yeah. The, the Creature from the Black Lagoons, yeah. So, I mean... And that actually hilarious enough, and a lot, not a lot of people know, because most people only know the one movie, but there were three. There was actually <coughs> three um, uh, Creature from Black Lagoon movies. There was, um, was trying to, uh, I'm trying to remember the names of all of them. There was, there was The Creature from Black Lagoon. Return of the, the Black Return Lagoon. The Return of the Creature. Return of the Creature. And, um, crap, what the hell was the name of that third one? We might have to look it up. Yeah, we're probably going to have to look it up. But that was the one hilarious enough, because what happened was... Um, the first two, the first two movies were more of the sort of, you know, cre uh, a creature runs a rampage and people have to go and hunt after him. Interesting enough, they did a cool little twist on that third movie. Third movie, actually, what happens is they they find the creature and the creature uh, is is like hurt, badly hurt. And what they do is they basically do a surgery on the creature, where basically they replace its gills with lungs. Yeah. And and they basically almost try to make it almost near human. But what happens is the creature just finds so hard to adapt, and it, it can't, and it feels like it can't go on. That in the end, and then what happens is he ends up falling in love with this nurse who's taking care of him. Yeah. But in the end, what happens is the the nurse uh, doesn't doesn't like him, and he he feels completely rejected. And here's the sad tragedy of all: people are like, <gasps> you know, but but it that. That third one ends with the creature basically throwing himself into the river and drowning himself. And it it shows you that even though he was near human, mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, he could never feel like he could fit in. Yeah. 
the whole thing is, is he knew that um, he he knew that basically he would never be accepted into that world, which was sad. But yeah, um, and uh, and anyway, but yeah, that was part of the monster movie era, and then um, and then also it came when when movies started developing sound. They, they, there was a, sort of some other ones as well that they started. That was when. That also was when they started doing really big experiments with animation. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, I can't go into this discussion of film without mentioning this, and this has to be mentioned, was when Disney came onto the scene. Walt Disney. Um, I mean, started out with a small little cartoon about a mouse named Steam... Uh, and they called it Steamboat Willie. Yeah. And, yeah, that was what started the Mickey Mouse cartoons. Mm-hmm. And, um... And and that was actually the first cartoons that started adapting sound. So what happens? They had cartoons prior to Mickey, because um, cartoons had been a part of theater going since since movies were a thing. Yeah. Animation and live action movies, hilariously enough, are about just as old as each other. This even is though true. even though people still treat still treat animation like it's younger than than film. No, film and animation have been are about the same age. Um. And, uh, um, and, uh, anyway, what happens, like, you know, Disney comes on the scene, and then, not only does he revolutionize cartoons in general with, with the fact that they get sound, but then, um, uh, about nine years later, 1937, comes out with the first, and a lot of people don't realize how big this was. You're talking about the now, first color? No, 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 not, not just first, no, 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 he wouldn't, he didn't do first color, but what happens, they had done color up to this point, no, no, first Full-length animated feature. Oh, that's right. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay, that's right. Um, the thing was, is like, uh, a lot of people take advantage of that nowadays and don't think it's a big deal. But it was a big deal back then. You go and you look at your history. You read your history. Nobody had done it up to that point. No. Everybody thought that animation was like, no, no, we just get cheap gags for five minutes, <laughs> and then we get to go and watch a real film. That was that was the whole thing that the, most people thought of cartoons up to that point. Nobody thought you could make a full-length movie out of it. In fact, what's so funny is the newspapers at the time were saying that Disney was crazy, that that he couldn't do it, that he couldn't pull it off, and that, um, and and in fact, a lot of the newspapers were dubbing it Disney's folly, um, and 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 they thought that Snow White was going to flop. They thought that he was that that he was insane for doing so, and that he was basically going to eat crow. And what happened was Snow White drops. Snow White becomes a huge success, mm-hmm. makes millions and millions of dollars. And now let me put it this way: it's like it's like it did. Uh, now by today's standards, it may not. People are like what? What? It did make billions. But here's the whole thing: remember, millions back then was like the equivalent the equivalent of billions nowadays. Um, the thing was that that it, it made a huge amount of money. So much, in fact, that not only was Disney able to do um, more feature animations, but he was actually able to go and and because uh, at that point they were renting out um, these studios called the Hyperion Studios. Yeah. And uh, um, and uh, what he did was he actually went and bought his own lot empty space and then built his own studio on it <laughs> and that's when he and, and that's when it, it basically and then 
and then from then on, you know, it was it was kind of up and down. But then Disney basically became what Disney became, and as we know, I mean, Disney practically owns like almost half the entertainment industry these days. Pretty much, and um, it, it's almost mm-hmm. like people want to say that Disney exploded overnight, but. I like to think a little differently because it was a gradual thing. Well, if you go and you watch his history and then you read about it as well, if you go and you do your research, the whole thing is is that, you know, most 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 of the comments and, and once again, um, you know, whether you love Disney or you hate Disney, you know, so, okay, I'm not going to hold that against you. But what I am going to say is this: at least from what I have seen, now there could be, there could be legit beefs out there, but from most of what I've seen is usually people complain about, and I'm not talking about Disney Studios now. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, I'm talking about Walt Disney himself. Um, most of the complaints I've ever heard about Walt Disney himself, usually, usually it would come from people who had no idea about how he got there. It was usually just from people who were basically thought his movies were were too were 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 too family oriented or or they were or or he was too cheesy or you know it was it was too happy go lucky or something you know it was always something because yeah. um and we know this about people you can't please everybody and it was always a couple or a group of people who would just piss and whine about oh it was too family oriented or it didn't have enough mature themes in or you know, adults couldn't enjoy it as well. And it's just like, yeah. well, really? It was, it was, it seemed like petty complaints, at least yeah. said, from my perspective. And, and, uh, and that's what I'm saying. And so I totally agree with you. And, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, but what happened was you gotta, you gotta give him credit, whether, whether you agree with what he did or you, or you don't agree with what he did. A man <coughs> from childhood was working his ass off to make sure that he, that he could get, you know, um, animation into this respected industry. Um, and he did. So, you know, whether you love him or hate him, you gotta admit, Disney pretty much is one of those people who turned animation into a legit industry. If we did not have the legacy that Walt Disney came out with, Mm -hmm. think of all the movies and all the entertainment that we would not have had Mm -hmm. he not blown up and had been so decisive and mm-hmm. you know and so intricate about how he wanted his cartoons to look and feel. Oh yeah. And that's what I'm saying. And then and and, and then uh, um and then uh and then from then on uh, the, the thing is is they get that that was that was coming uh coming out and then um I noticed uh um then um and then there was a lot of uh from the in 1930s and 40s you had a lot of uh, crime movies. Had a lot of crime movies that were coming to prominence. That's mm-hmm. when you had a lot of movies about gangsters. I mean, that's when the original Untouchables came out. Yeah. Um, you you had um, you had um, you had the Maltese Falcon. Um, you know, um, and and you um, and, and you had just these really cool sort of like spy slash espionage movies coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, and and then I noticed that uh, um, that that um, once the 1950s came into play, that actually kind of um, 
became less popular, and then what became popular in the 1950s was then, that's when you got the invasion of sci-fi. Yeah. There was a lot of big sci-fi happening, and it's like, you got the, like, the alien invasion movies, you know, I mean, this is when, this is when you start having things like, uh, the, the original invasion of the body snatchers coming out, um... Great movie, by the way. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and in fact, a lot of people don't know, but it's basically, it's a, um... Uh, the the original, at least the original anyway, the original invasion of the body snatchers is uh, an allegory for um, for actually communism. Because mm-hmm. what happened was was the whole idea was that they could infiltrate into our society and they could be anybody. And think about the the whole sort of communist craze in the nineteen fifties. Everybody thought that communists were everywhere. So the whole thing is, is that was the whole once again metaphor for what they did with the invasion of body snatchers. They basically used the aliens as a metaphor for communists. And some people think that it was poking fun of it, but it was actually, to me, I feel it was actually an early warning of what could happen. No, here's, yeah, here's the whole thing. Now, once again, you, obviously nothing did happen. Exactly. But once again, what, what people have to take into account, and this is where people need to remember that the thinking nowadays is nowhere near what the thinking was during that time period. And you have to kind of put your shoes in that time period. Yeah. The whole thing is, back then, the communist scare was a big thing. Everybody was afraid. And they were genuinely afraid. And the whole thing was is that they, you know, you had all these people worrying that at any time Russia could push the big red button and 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 then and then we'd have like atom bombs blowing up all over the place. And it was a very real fear too yeah. because we all knew that they had them. And it was... Yeah. Uh, and so once again, it reflected in the movies of that time period. A lot of the movies in the 1950s um they they had a lot of sci-fi movies during that period, but the reason why was because of the whole atomic scare. You yeah. Know? Um, ever since we uh, dropped, ever since we dropped the atomic bomb on Japan, then there was just a whole lot of movies coming out around that time. And once again, I've got to point this out: history film, and you can't go through the history film without including this franchise. Started in the 1950s, and they still have movies going nowadays. Godzilla. If you can't give at least praise to how Godzilla alone shaped the monster movie yeah. cinema part of mm-hmm. film, then you're fucking nuts. Oh, exactly. I totally agree <laughs> with you. That's what I'm saying. It's like, you can't mention any history of film without mentioning Godzilla. Godzilla had a huge impact. I don't give a crap what people think. It's like, oh, Godzilla sucks. I don't care if you think it sucks. You have to acknowledge... Godzilla has to be acknowledged. He's like, Godzilla, flesh enough, he's a big, giant, freaky uh, freak, freaky dinosaur, like, mutated dinosaur. Yeah. But, but you've got to acknowledge, in this case, the elephant in the room. It's a radioactive elephant, but... Yeah, that's but, a big fucking elephant. But, but what I'm saying is, that's the whole thing. Godzilla has been important to cinema, because as you pointed out, he helped shape future monster movies. Anytime there have been movies where monsters fight each other, well, guess who you get to thank? Exactly. <laughs> and even, um, and I know people don't want to say this, but the new movie, uh, mm-hmm. the one about the Megalodon. Oh, um, yeah. 
Yeah, that even has to be able to pay homage to Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. That well, here's the thing: big, gigantic monsters. Now, in this case, as you said, with, uh, with 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 that one, it's a big, gigantic prehistoric shark. But yeah. here's the whole thing: don't care, because here's here's the thing: that just as you said, and I totally agree, it owes its existence to things like Godzilla. We wouldn't even be doing giant monster movies. Now we had a few prior to that. Like one, one of the I will I will at least give I will at least give credit where credits due. One of the first gigantic monster movies that we had. Um, there were there were a few that that predated it. Um, but but what happened was Godzilla kind of perfected on it. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm just gonna give you a few. A few you already know, like like one, obviously King Kong. Yeah. King uh, King Kong, which happened in the 1930s, one of the big monster movies. But that one was not so much about monsters fighting each other. That was just sort of like more of this thing. You have this misunderstood monster, kind of tries to kidnap the one, runs up the tower, and then yeah. and then the military comes in and kills it. And <laughs> see, and I always thought that um, yeah. that King Kong was basically this big monkey that wanted a piece of ass. <laughs> but I was but you know, and then there was another one, um, and one of our favorite special effects guys, um, that and this is this predates George Lucas, okay? Yeah. Um, and and he started a revolution and started in the late forties, worked his way through the nineteen fifties, went clear up actually until the early eighties, made some of our favorite movies, our favorite franchises, um, and it's Ray Harryhausen. Um, he, yeah, well, he did the ones, uh, he did the ones like, uh, um, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yep. That was actually the precursor to Godzilla, and in fact, the guy who created Godzilla actually acknowledged that The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was an inspiration. In fact, and, I believe in an yeah. eighter, in a later special edition adaptation of it, yeah. there's actually a part in the special features where he talks about how he had gotten his inspiration from that film. Oh yeah, and exactly. And then and then and then when you look at also Godzilla itself, Godzilla is really an allegory for nuclear war. Yeah. I mean, cuz think about it. Um you have this dinosaur which mutated because of what happened with the atomic bomb. Yeah. And it's really sort of a way of basically saying this that Godzilla is in a way he's a metaphor for the sins of mankind. Uh-huh. And that's basically the sins of mankind coming to bite us in the ass. Um, Literally. Yeah. I mean, obviously in later films they adapted it to be more of a monster versus monster kind of thing. Some being more silly than others, but then they had some more serious adaptations. Because Godzilla's had so many different iterations. They had they have the first initial Godzilla run, which started with the first Godzilla movie, which were clear up until 1975's Terror of Mecha Godzilla. Yes. That's actually when the original... Um, Godzilla series ended. Mm -hmm. Then they kind of put it on ice for about nine to ten years. Then Godzilla 1985 comes out. And what happened was what they did with Godzilla 1985 was almost like they ignored the fact that all the silly Godzilla movies happened. They decided, okay, what we're going to do is this is going to be like... Godzilla 1985 is going to be like a direct sequel to the first Godzilla movie. And um, while I totally give yeah. them props for doing that, yeah, it's almost like it, they were totally ignoring the fact that everything else had happened. And 
To me, I think that's kind of a slight to the cinematics of in how way, Godzilla came about. In a way, but I, I, I totally understand it. And also, uh, I understand both sides on this one. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that, no, I understand. Because there were some really good Godzilla movies in the canon. Um, now, here's the whole thing. Now, I think they should have just cut out all the stupid, silly ones. Like, like we could have done without Son of Godzilla. I mean, that, oh, could, that could go to hell. Jesus uh, Christ, yes. We, got, we, could have, we could have done without Godzilla's Revenge. We could have done... I mean, this is when you got stupid, annoying kids in it. And we make Godzilla into a kid's movie. It's just... It's done. It's like, done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you're just like, wait a minute. Godzilla's not a big old fluffy teddy bear. Oh, yeah, and then... Yeah, this one's saying... Um, or, or even Megalon versus Godzilla. Yeah, the thing is, some of those later ones I could totally done without. But but I wish they would, would have at least acknowledged maybe Godzilla raids again. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe Godzilla versus Mothra. Godzilla versus King Kong. That would have been nice if they yeah. kept that in there. Do that. But however, however, regardless of all that, I, I'm I'm going to go on a limb and basically say I, I and, and I may be one of the few who enjoyed this, but I think you agree with me when I I, I done a I done a personal review of my own. For those who don't know. If you follow me on social media, and uh, one of the things I do on Facebook is I'll do small little mini reviews of movies that I watch each night. He calls them skewers, and they're actually very, very well done and well thought out. Yeah, and what I'll basically uh, let people know is if I'm uh, watching a film, I'll basically let them know uh, about the film, why I like it, uh, or why I don't like it, or, you know, and then just get my feelings on it, and then I'll, and then at the end I'll let them know if I recommend it or not. Um, and, uh, one of the things I had actually done was, um, one of the, one of the, uh, reviews I had done was for Godzilla 1985. And one of the things I went on a limb and saying was, there's this kind of consensus that, that Godzilla 1985 was, was not that good a movie. And I completely disagree. I now, disagree too because it, it was really well done. Yeah. Um, the actors that they had mm -hmm. um, brought about for the film were yeah. completely fantastic. Yeah. How they did Godzilla and made him look was amazing. Oh, yeah, and what's funny, you know what their one complaint was? And this is just to me was stupid. The one complaint was, oh my gosh, he didn't have another <coughs> monster to fight. They were, they were disappointed he didn't have another monster to fight. And I was saying, no, but here's what I like. Because Godzilla 1985, to me, is a continuation of what the first movie established. Because if you remember, the first movie was actually more of a serious thing. It wasn't goofy. Yeah. It actually had this kind of, um, almost, almost kind of a, what would you call it? Like a, like a sad ambience to it. It did. And, uh, and 19, Godzilla 1985 kind of continues on that. It, it, it feels a lot more dark than a lot of the other Godzilla movies. And I like that. You know, even though he doesn't fight another monster in it, there are still some really great, some really great stuff in there. And it's another, to me, another great allegory of how mankind um, basically can, can be too arrogant. Mankind's arrogance coming back on itself. Um... And then, and then that led to a really awesome later Godzilla series. My my favorite, and this is actually my favorite Godzilla series of movies. But I think it's because you and I grew up watching these. Yeah. Um, we got um, that's when you got um, God Godzilla versus Biollante. Yes. Um, which was awesome. Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Um, you got God Go Godzilla and Mos Mothra. Uh, um, uh, Battle for the Earth. I think it was called. Uh -huh. um, um, you've got Godzilla vs. Mecha Godzilla 2 um, 
And then you had Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. That one was uh, actually more funny than serious, but it was still an amazing But it was still film. awesome. It was yeah. still awesome in that one. And then it, that, that series was topped off and, and it officially ended that particular series. I mean, they did another one later on. But, uh, but, uh, but what I'm saying is that it, uh, that particular series of movies ended with Godzilla vs. Destroya. Okay, now I'm going to pause for a second because yeah. that movie right there, yeah. not only was it brilliantly done, yeah. but it was, it was shot with such poise and such mm-hmm. grace and amazingness that next to the original Godzilla, now this is just my opinion, Go ahead. is one of the top ten canon, uh, for me, Godzilla films ever. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and then like I said, and then um, now that we've gone through the 1950s sci-fi stuff, um, see, in the 1960s, uh, you kind of one of the genres that started taking over several different things. First off, the spy genre, which kind of took from the sort of uh, uh, gangster slash espionage genre of the yeah. 1930s and 40s, but then, but but like 1960s, and we had actually mentioned this franchise before. But I was one of the big franchises that came out in the 1960s, the James Bond franchise. Yep. And also, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I also believe that um, Fred Astaire had also been in 12 Angry Men. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then they started, uh, a lot of courtroom dramas yeah. started in the 1960s. Exactly, which the, was awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I believe that's also when we got things like Perry Mason. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Perry Mason and Matlock. Yes. Um, With Andy Griffith. Um, and oh, in the heat of the night. Yes. <laughs> and while we're on the subject of the of the courtroom traumas, yeah, you, you gotta give it to Perry Mason. Like seriously, yeah. Yeah. like I, I love Matlock. Don't get me wrong. I totally love Andy Griffith. He did an amazing, yeah. amazing yeah. series. But had it not been for Perry Mason. Cementing yeah. the court drama. It's yeah. just wow. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I said there's so many different things coming out in the nineteen sixties were different. Um I know that um um oh that was when you had a lot of the uh television animation coming out. That was uh that was before then, for those that don't know, animation prior to the nineteen sixties was well, you would see it in theaters, just as we talked about. It. it would be something you would either watch it would be like a five to ten minute segment right before you'd watch a, a film. Yeah. Or or in the case of like Disney's, it would be like, you know, you'd have some feature length ones that you'd go and see in the theater. But the whole point was animation up to that point, you'd go and you'd watch in theaters. Well, in the 1960s, what happened was they started adapting it for television. This is when you actually started having um, animated television shows. This is when, when Hanna-Barbera came to prominence. Yes. This is when you got... The Jetsons, the Flintstones, you started getting mm. things like uh, Yogi Bear. Um, um, you had... Uh, uh, you had Snagglepuss. Snagglepuss. Uh, yeah. And you um. you had that whole Hanna-Barbera crew, yeah. like uh, Dixie and Trixie, the two mice. Yes, yes, yes. And them, and then, as I said, and this is when it was it started to become a big, uh, a big thing in television. Mighty Mouse as well. Oh yes, yes, Mighty Mouse. <laughs> um, but but you, 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 you said this was when the television industry for animation cropped up. Yeah. Um, many other things that that, 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 that started happening was uh, then you actually started having because um, it, it started in the late '60s. But then you started having. Um, I mean, 
They expanded on it in the 70s even further. Uh-huh. What happened was, starting coming out in the late 60s, was they started having a lot of the, um, the, um, sort of, um, what do they call it? Like, like the spooky, sort of, possession movies. Oh, um, yeah. And it started with, it started with things like Rosemary's Baby, which came out in 68. That was a creepy movie. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry, I only yeah. watched that once in yeah. my entire life, and I will yeah. never watch it again. Oh yeah, it's 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 um it's one of those movies. Interestingly enough, it's almost like you, it's almost like you feel like you've 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 gone you've gone you you've gone and done something wrong by watching it. You're just like I gotta go get my communion on. I gotta go talk to my pastor. Yeah, he's see like, how many rosaries. Sprinkle myself with some holy water and. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, I gotta go to confession for at least eight hours. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it, it was one of those things. But uh, but but once again, it, but it started this whole kind of thing where where basically it was like, uh, and then um, and a lot of a lot of those things that would translate it over into the seventies because like because uh, that's when you got things like the exorcist. Uh, the exorcist. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Omen. The Omen, yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I gotta say this real quick. The yeah. Omen, for me, I watched all three of those, yeah. and I will never watch them again. They were just too out there. They were too creepy. Yeah. It just, great, yeah. great cinematography, great, mm. great films, yeah. but there's no way in hell you'll ever get me to sit down and watch them again. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Well, but then, but then another thing is like uh, another thing that came out like uh, like uh, as we said like you know, like you know we had to talk about the spy movies in the 1960s starting with the James Bond ones. Yeah. Um, well, that actually translated into the 70s and worked its way further, and then you start getting what your sort of your anti-hero cop movies because that's when things like. The first Death Wish came out. Yes. That that was when the Dirty Harry movies started coming oh, out. Dirty Harry. Oh, yeah. dear heavens. I love... Dude, yeah. the whole Dirty Harry franchise was yeah. just... Yeah. It, it, there's really not a word to describe how fantastic that whole and, series and you can't, was. You can't talk about 70s action movies. You can't talk about without bringing this into the fold. And you just have to, you just have to mention it. Shaft. Shaft also started in the 70s. See, and Shaft brought along um, such movies as Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. Um, and there were just a lot of movies that came out during that time that well, the Shaft had well, brought yeah, about. Well, yeah, and, and it was movies like that. Like, movies like Shaft and um, and the Dirty Harry movies and even Death Wish, which started this kind of trend of sort of like anti-hero cop movies. I mean, I mean... Die Hard owes its allegiance to the movies in the 1970s that paved the way. Oh, yeah! I, I can't believe I didn't mention this one. And this is another one that kind of started the sort of anti-hero cop movies. And Gene Hackman's in it. It's The French Connection. Ooh, I love The French Connection. Yeah. That was an awesome movie. Yeah, and that also helped start the, the anti-hero cop trend. Now... I know we're in the 70s right now. Yeah. Um, but I would like to skip over into the 80s because there's a ton of movies that you and I grew up with that just the 80s were an amazing decade. Oh, oh, oh it's okay. We, we, we can sweep through that as well because why? what I love in this one, this is going right into our childhood. Now, once again, <laughs> this is simply our opinion. We grew up in the 80s, so of course we're going to be a little nostalgic for it. Just, just, to, yeah, just, 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 just to say, so, so, and, so here's the thing. We're not saying that 
our childhood is better than yours, okay? For those who are younger, for those who are older, the whole thing is, is no. We just grew up in the 80s, so this is why Corey and I are so nostalgic for this decade. Now, with the mm. 80s movies coming yeah. out, I gotta throw out three franchises right now that I just absolutely adore from the 80s. Go ahead. Freaking, dude. <sighs> Beverly Hills Cop 1, 2, and 3. Oh, yeah. And that's actually what started sort of the, um, the police comedy. Because they had a few things that were toying around with before that, but what I loved about it was, was Eddie Murphy was just so great at doing this. He really was. Was he had, You had this movie that had this overall serious plot, but he was just throwing all these hilarious jokes mm-hmm. in it. Because... I mean, that was a really great... And I love the fact that you bring him up. Because it wasn't just Beverly Hills Cop. Because he did so so well in those ones, and that was great too. But another one I really liked of his that he did in that decade. The Golden Child. Yes. I take oh, so yeah. many lines from that. The there Golden are so many, Child is so, so many awesome. quotable lines from that exactly. movie. Exactly. And um, another franchise. Um, yeah. National Lampoon's Police Academy. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't think it was National Lampoons, but it was Police Academy. It was Police Academy. But yeah, yeah. but but no, I love that franchise. Oh, There's so many God. other. I mean, oh God, so many freaking <laughs> things I love in that decade. I mean, Back to the Future franchise. Yes. Um, that I mean, granted, it started in the '70s, but it ended in the '80s. So I'm just gonna use the '80s as this: the Star Wars films. Yeah. Um. Uh, it, it, that was also when they had uh, Blade Runner, Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> um, uh, uh, um, oh, one movie franchise that doesn't have a whole lot of credit, and I totally love the first two. Can't say I'm a big fan of of, of, of the later film, but the Crocodile Dundee movies. Oh, good heavens, yes, Crocodile Dundee was amazing. Yeah, it was so freaking hilarious. That's not a knife. Yeah. This is nice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that too. Um, well, and then, uh, yeah, well, then the, and then, um, and the first one was really, really good. But to tell you the truth, my favorite out of all those was the second. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's and right. I love that because, like, because right. I love because the first one was great because it was sort of a romantic comedy. But yeah. I love the second one because the second one was more of a straight action comedy. Exactly, and it was, and it was so great. It's like. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, uh, once again, so many quotable lines from that one, too. Exactly. I mean, I I, I, I totally love it. And, uh, like, I love the scene where he's in that room, uh, where where he's in in that club that was full of those punks. Uh Uh-huh. And then, then anyway, um, one of the kids says, well, what do you think your chances are of getting out of here with that jacket? And then he chucks the knife at the kid's hairdo and pins his his hair to the freaking... um, Post exactly, and then, and then he goes. <coughs> <"Earn average." laughs> it's just, and the '80s brought yeah. about such, such fantastic one-liners, such amazing movies, such amazing oh. music. Oh, uh, well, well, and then it started also the sword and sorcery yes. uh, sort of uh, uh, genre movies because that started with Conan the Barbarian. Exactly. Um, and then and then you had things like Beastmaster and um. And uh, to a lesser extent, uh, to a lesser extent, the, um, what? Willow. Oh, Willow, yes. forget Willow? Come on. I'm so so sorry. I'm so sorry. Willow, Willow, part of that decade. Excellent, excellent movie. Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) God forbid we forget that one. Exactly. Um, Forget Willow, you should get punched in the dick. 
Oh yeah, um, <laughs> and, and then this, and then they had uh, various imitators all over the place. But I mean, God, that was such a good decade. And, and I had so many classics. Oh, one of my favorite movies of that decade. I mean, it, it started out in the late '80s, but it kind of worked its way into the early '90s. But Debbie I still, does Dallas? No. Oh, um, but bad. no, you, but you'll, but, you, but, 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 but I know you'll still love this one. Totally agree with me. The Bill and Ted movies. Yes. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and then especially in this one. I think this one gets underrated, but I still love it the most. Yeah. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That one, for me, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was actually a lot better than the first one. I mean, both of them were really good, but, yeah. I, but I don't know. It's like some of my most famous, most hilarious lines came from that movie. Uh -huh. like, I totally love that scene where they'd gone to hell, and then um, and then Bill and Ted are looking at each other and be like, uh, and then Bill says to Ted, he's like, he's like, oh no, uh, uh, like no, first first Ted says. Hey, Bill, is this hell? And then Bill's like, dude, we've been totally lied to by our album covers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 uh, and then, yeah, so they had so many different, uh, different things. Um, I know one genre that came about in the 80s um, that was really good that we like is the cyberpunk genre. Oh, yeah. Um, Cyberpunk genre was awesome. Yeah, and, and it started in that, um, but then it kind of moved its way into the '90s as well. Um, and I mean, a, a, like a good example, a good a good example of that would uh, would would be uh, would be the anime movie Ghost in the Shell. Yes. And I'm not, and I, yeah, I'm not talking about the live action Scarlett Johansson movie they have right now. I'm talking about. The original 90s anime. Yeah, we're not talking about that crap that they tried to... Oh, dear God almighty. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, but but anyway, uh, and then moving into the 90s, yeah, then they started to come out with uh, various other different things. Like, uh, I know one huge genre in the 90s was sci-fi. Yes. They had so many good sci-fi movies. Like, that was when we got The Fifth Element. Fifth Element was such an awesome movie. Also, The Fifth Element... Um, was definitely the one of the movies that mm -hmm. that brought out Taxi Cab Joe. Oh yes, and you guys, so. uh, well, I, I love it because we talk about both the '80s and the '90s, and, and two of your influences came out right there because, and from the '80s, like you said, like there's a lot of Blade Runner influence in Taxi Cab Joe. Ton of Blade Runner. Um, but then '90s. Um, that was when Fifth Element came out, and there's a lot of Fifth Element influence in Taxi Cab Joe. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so we're gonna speed forward on into the now films, and we're just gonna yeah. pick well, apart a couple. Uh, well, I think uh, what we'll do is we're gonna, real quick, just basically talk about the difference between the older movies and the newer movies, and, yeah. and I did want to touch on that just slightly a bit before we get to our recommendations for books. How about it? Um... And and you and I were were basically talking about this. You got to admit, and and, and 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 I'd like to get your take on it, and I'm gonna give my take on it real quick. Is that is that now? Don't get me wrong here. I there's a lot of modern films I like, but I do feel, I still do feel like I think most old school people feel that modern films rely way too heavily on CGI. Now I'm not saying that movies should never have CGI. I just feel like they should enhance. They should enhance a scene, not be the whole scene. When it pertains yeah. to a mm. certain scene that will yeah. enhance the scene, yeah. I'm totally okay with CGI. But yeah. when it's smeared throughout the whole film, it's just like, okay, well, why have actors? Well, well, then, well yeah. And, and, well, not just that, <laughs> but it's like, but it's like, there's certain things like, gotta give practical effects. This you talk about like 
the, uh, like the, when we talk about the 80s and 90s. Yeah. One of the cool thing about those decades was that they had a lot of really cool practical effects. And what happened was was when a person looked like they were hurt, it really looked like they were hurt. Mm -hmm. um, when you saw a creepy monster, it really looked like it had rotting skin and flesh or some sort of scales or something. The whole thing was, you, you believed it because the makeup sold it. Or the or the blue screen sold it. Uh, 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 I mean, nowadays we call it green screen, but back then it was blue screen. Yeah. And uh, and, and 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 yeah, and it just sold it. And 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 so that that's my opinion. On it. What's what's your opinion on it? Um, my opinion is that when you had the films coming out in the '80s with the blue screen, you had the most realistic um, films coming out. And it almost felt like they were popping off the screen mm -hmm. wanting to rip your flesh off. And it, all, it wasn't just the monster movies. It was the sci-fi. It was the barbarian movies. It was all the movies that they used the special effects so, so, to their um, utmost ability. So essentially what, what you're saying is that, is that you and I are in complete agreement on this. Oh, that, of course. That, that, uh, that this is nothing against modern movies. There are several modern movies that you and I really like. Well, I just feel um, that CGI but, has pretty much killed the yeah, movie industry. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so so uh, we'll leave on that note. Uh, we want to thank you for listening to our history of, of film cinema. We may expand on this a little bit more later, but we hope you'll enjoy what you've heard so far. Now we're going to get to our book recommendations as quick as possible. Um, one book... Uh, it's a graphic novel, really. And in fact, and in fact, I, you know, I need to, I need to thank Corey, my my co-host here, because I mean, it's just, it's it's freaking, it's just freaking awesome. Uh, but it's it's a graphic novel called Ronin, which is done by Frank Miller. Yeah. And I, this is this is my recommendation for today. In fact, I'm just going to recommend this one for for today. Okay. And and I, I just want to recommend people this one because what 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 you have here is it's it's essentially a. It's a samurai story, but it's done with sort of a sci-fi twist because it's actually based way in the future. It's, it's it got kind of like a Tokyo uh, Tokyo Ghoul type dystopian feel to it. Uh, almost, yeah, almost kind of like that. And uh, and and and, uh, um, and and but what, what I like about it is it feels like a classic samurai movie, but it's what? done with a sci-fi so twist. So when you say Tokyo Ghoul, are you talking about um, a character who's completely whiny and can't accept what he is? I was talking about Tokyo Ghost, my bad. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, to be clear, he meant Tokyo Ghost. Check yeah. that out. It's actually another cool graphic novel for Rick Remender. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, sorry for any confusion, and, and for those who are Tokyo Ghoul fans, we do apologize. Unfortunately, we're not fans of that one. We're sorry to say. We're sorry to say. However, if you're a fan, we respect that, and we won't make fun of you for it. Out loud. <laughs> Um, anyways, um, I think, uh, so what's, what's your book recommendation before we wrap up? My book recommendation is if you have not gotten a chance to read this series, um, if you have a chance to read the Arkham Asylum, uh, story arc of Batman, freaking get every single issue, <laughs> every single graphic novel, because... That series alone is fantastic. Oh yeah, it's one of uh, Grant Morrison's first projects, and and, and yeah, just uh, personally, I'd say um, if you want the whole story, just look at the graphic novel because you can actually get that for a good cheap price. Yep. Um, 
And so, while we're wrapping this up, um, I, I, I just want to take this opportunity to say, once again, check out our podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Spotify. Um, uh, please check out our books. Taxi Cab Joe, Darum, Captain of the Stars. Look it up on a website, crazymonkeyink.com. And, uh, That's an ink with a K. Yeah, ink with a K, thank you. And, well, I think that pretty much sends the show for us tonight. Jared, thanks again for being a part of this podcast. It's always fun to have you with. It's always good to be here. And for everybody else, have a fantastic weekend, and we will see you next Wednesday. Have a beautiful week.